1: Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. When more than €22 billion isn't enough, the latest funding crisis facing our health service, we debate.
2: It clearly is an over-personalisation of the issue in in, in relation to health. I mean, the government in its entirety is responsible for for budgets.
1: Also on the programme, growing fears the Israel-Hamas conflict could spread to a regional war We also get the latest on Irish citizens caught up in the war zone. And fears over the impact of a looming carer's strike, we hear one woman's
3: story.
4: The dependability of knowing that I'm going to have someone come and help. So if I can't do something today, and that will be most days, then there's help. That's gone.
1: budget and what shortfalls in funding may mean for services. Health Minister Stephen Donnelly may be called before an emergency meeting of the Aractus Health Committee next week after the head of the HSE said the budget for the health service next year was inadequate. Senior management believe an extra budget of up to €2 billion was needed and that's just to maintain existing services, more than double what was actually a site.
2: It clearly is an over of the issue in, in, in relation to health. I mean, the government in its entirety is responsible for, for budgets. Uh, certainly during COVID, we actually dealt with structural deficits that, that was there in 2019 and into 2020. Um, and services have expanded. Uh, I mean, the, of that, there is no doubt.
1: Well, I'm joined by Fanny Gale, Minister of State, Neil Richmond. Sinn Féin TD and health spokesperson, David Cullinan. Irish Daily Mirror political correspondent Louise Byrne, and by Irish Times health editor Paul Cullen, and you're all very welcome to the programme. Paul, I'm going to come to you first because we do hear every year about difficulties around budgets and spending in the health service. What is different this time round?
2: Yeah, it's uh, very similar to previous years, it's just bigger and it's happening after the budget, not before the budget, which is a proper mess really for the government. Um, They had a otherwise kind of well-received budget, uh, I, I think it's fair to say, um, but it's been messed up by uh, a, a chasm that exists between the perception in the Department of Health and the HSC on one side, and certainly Department of Public Expenditure and much of the rest of the government on the other about what is needed to fund the health budget. Uh, and as you said, Bernard Gloucester of the HSE said, I don't have enough funds. Um, Stephen Donnelly is telling everybody, there isn't enough there for the budget. It's not just about new development, it's about funding what we do at the present. And it's not just this year, it's next year, and it runs into future years. So the chasm, as I say, it's, it's of the order of over two and a half billion, it's massive.
1: Okay, so just to be clear, the Department of Health had said that they needed two billion euro, as we pointed out there, to basically stand still, to maintain the existing demand on the health service. What was the allocation in this budget?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, they got an extra 800 million in core funding, Including 100 million for new developments, um, which is quite a small amount. Um, the, the, the estimate of what they need is about three times that.
1: And this is, in fairness, while it is perhaps a sizable amount of money, 800 million, it is the smallest increase in funding given to the health budget in some time, isn't it?
2: Just it to is. put that into context. It is, and what the, the point that the HSC has been making is that they've seen a phenomenal increase in demand when patients, perhaps it's the post-COVID pandemic bounce or something, they don't really know why, but more patients and particularly older, more needy patients are coming through their doors and they're struggling to cope with that.
1: Okay, Uh, Louise, there does seem to be sort of a personality clash here too a bit, doesn't there? Because we have obviously Stephen Donnelly coming forward and saying, this is what the health service needs to stand still. But in the background, and actually not in the background, he came to the foreground last week with Pascal Donoghue, who would have been you know, deciding this budget for the health service, saying, you know, I just need to kind of keep a closer eye on the spending in the department. And you really got the sense from him that he wasn't that happy with how the department was being managed. And they certainly weren't getting any more money until he was happy.
5: Yeah,
6: and I think this has really been a build up and what we've seen over the last week definitely has been a culmination of kind of raves going on in the background for a number of months. We've seen in a number of newspapers quite fraught interactions and quite fraught correspondence between Minister Donoghue and Minister Donnelly. And I mean, we heard all this in the run-up to the budget in some aspects as well. We kept hearing Minister Donoghue saying, and indeed Finance Minister Michael McGrath, who was Stephen Donnelly's Fianna Fáil party colleague, they were both saying that the expenditure in health and how much money health needed, some call it an overspend of their budget, others would say that that budget was underfunded in the first place, but really that the amount of money that health needs could actually pose a risk to other departments' budget. So it did kind of seem from early on that it was kind of being pitted against Stephen Donnelly in some ways that he was using all this money, he was needing all this money, and what would this mean for everybody else and what they were saying was going to be quite a tight budget. So it really does seem to be Stephen Donnelly thrust into the middle of this argument.
1: And there does seem to be a different attitude, I have to say, between the time when Michael McGrath was the Minister for Public Expenditure, meeting Donnelly and discussing the health budget, and when Minister Pascal Donoghue is the Minister for Public Expenditure, meeting Stephen Donnelly and discussing the health budget. Would you agree?
6: That certainly seems to be the charge, but I mean, I don't think Stephen Donnelly, in fairness, would say he was the only one that got that reaction from Pascal Donoghue. I was speaking to a number of ministers, a number of government sources, a number of advisors over the budget negotiations, and they were all saying that Pascal Donoghue was being quite tight with the purse strings. So uh, perhaps Stephen Donnelly could make that case and he could say that Pascal Donoghue was being hard on him, but a lot of other ministers would also say, look, we didn't get what we wanted either. It was just that kind of a budget. Is that what's
1: happened here? Look, everybody wanted more. Uh, Stephen Donnelly, you just didn't get what you wanted, but you got quite a lot. Is that what you'll be saying Tim?
7: Well, no at all, but like, this is a collective decision. It's taken by the government as a whole. All three party leaders signed off on the budget. The cabinet in its entirety signed off on the budget last well, Stephen Tuesday. Stephen Donnelly signed off on this budget. Is Every, what you're everyone signed off on the budget. Every line minister would have gone in looking for X, Y, Z. Every line minister probably would have liked a little bit more. This budget was still an expansionary budget. The health budget will still go up. Every government department will still see their funding go up some would like it to have gone up by more and we have an opportunity now we see in health the case has been made quite clear that more money is needed and we recognize that but it's always needed more money and what the government as a collective has said is Yes, there is more money being provided. Some would say it's obviously not enough, both from the HSE and David Will in a second, too. But we've also said, is it down to just inflationary costs? Is it down to just increase on services? Is there more? So there will be an element of a spending review needed within the department. And what's of that Health.
1: more? Because Bernard Gloucester was out yesterday on radio where he said, you know, most of the extra demands here on our finances has been because of extra patient demand and has been because of inflation. That's been the majority of the overspend this year, which we think is somewhere between one and one and a half billion.
7: That's the majority, but what's the rest? And where can savings be made? There is an element of due diligence needed in any budgetary process. People will always make the charge that we're constantly putting money at health. The health budget has increased um, nearly 10 billion euro in the last 15 years. It's consistently going up, and rightly so. And um, what the government has said is we're taking a stock take. We're making sure it's correct. And uh, the allocation, as I said, it still is an increased allocation to the Department of Health and indeed to every government department in this budget.
1: OK, David Cullinan, it is still an increase, but before we put any more, we need to take uh, a moment. We need to look under the bonnet here of spending and health and see if there are any extra savings. The budget just cannot keep going up indiscriminately.
0: Well, this is a Fine Gael government that has been in place for 13 years and to be talking about going under the bonnet of anything at this point is laughable. The reality is that the government is chronically underfunding our health services this year and Neil is right, this was a deliberate decision taken by Cabinet and by the leaders of the parties in government, but it's not one to be proud of because the consequences of this are 7,000 frontline posts that uh, are funded will now be scrapped or approved will now be scrapped there is a moratorium on recruitment on key frontline positions, including junior doctors. I was in Kilkenny Hospital today in St Luke's meeting management and staff and they told me it's very difficult to hang on to non-training junior doctors. Many of them have been poached by the NHS and elsewhere in the world. And then we've given the green light for those staff to go. And it's now, just, there, will be new, is,
1: there will be new posts, won't there, within this budget. I think Bernard Glasser did say yesterday there is funding for 2,200 new posts. But
0: that's existing levels of service but very few new posts it's unprecedented oh, it's, it's unprecedented new posts, it that the head of the HSC for the first time has clearly said that the HSC will be inadequately funded we had a scathing report today uh, from the former head of the HSC, Tony O'Brien. If you talk to anybody who understands what's happening in healthcare, they will say this will bite and bite hard. We haven't even funded the health service to stand still, never mind move forward. So all of the clinical programmes in relation to cancer, cardiovascular, maternity have received no new funding. Minister Donnelly and the government on three occasions this year announced 1,500 rapid bill beds. They are gone. Not one cent of funding has been delivered. And who has been shafted is not Stephen Donnelly patients have been shafted and those on the front okay. line have been shafted. And I can tell you if I can make this point, here? I have no doubt that your programme will be talking about the consequences of this for the rest of the year. And while those consequences will be felt, the people who have to bear responsibility are the government who will vote for okay, this. Let vote. Me let Neil yeah, look,
7: David's used a lot of emotive language there and he's right to, because it is a very emotive issue that concerns a lot of people. But quite clearly what he isn't saying is it's making out as if we're slashing the health budget. And I remember times where budgets were being cut uh, through need by governments. This isn't the case. It is being expanded. Some people would want it to be expanded more, but the government has to look at but Just to be clear
1: with people, it is being expanded by £808 was the allocation, but... At the same time, we know that there is a spending gap of one point potential five billion this year. So it's not really being expanded. And if they t- needed an extra one and a half billion this year, and we're
7: talking about an over bu- overall budget of just under twenty-three billion euro is spent in health, the most that it's ever been spent, and it's gone up consistently despite David's claims of underfunding over the last decade. We have gr- greatly increased the amount. There's over twenty-three thousand people working there. It's a huge amount. Well, what about those comments from
1: Tony O'Brien? He was writing in the Sunday Independent yesterday. He said this budget. He's a former head of the mm. HSE. He said the budget would make you sick. He said it's done by a Fine minister to make a Fine minister look bad. He I said think... there's malevolence actually in it.
7: No, I think that's a number of, bit of score settling from a former official. And we've seen similar um, columns How of everyone else's fault. I'm not saying it's anyone's fault there, but you are, and you just want to just say, let's just No, I don't. I you're, want you're dro- health services. No, no, you're driving funded. up emotive language, no, I'm definitely. I'm... I'm talking because, about a budget matter. Have and a budget that is increasing. Patients. And all and of us it, have it the same empathetic. The concerns, don't care about but you're talking over about me and you're just trying to make charges and you're saying I don't care about health. And you know that's the, the lowest form of politics. But let's be a bit serious. This is a budget just under 23 billion euro, has to service an entire health service. We are taking a look if there's inflationary costs, if there's increased demands, of course that's the thing. But even the health The CEO has only said that's the majority of it. There has to be other costs that. But there is
0: an incredible amount of spin here. The bottom line and the facts of the situation Now you talked about talking Spend over everything. people. The facts of the situation are that even the head of the HSE acknowledges that the health service has not got enough money to stand still. So if you don't provide the health service with enough money to stand still, never mind improve, that's a step backwards and that's a cut. But do you not oh, believe so there should be an no, element of due diligence? No, 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 hang there on there a second. You've had lots put of in time. Place do you not believe there should be an element when it
7: comes to budgetary? If you were the Minister of Health tomorrow, would you not think there has to be an element of due diligence spending, or do you just always write the blank check, what did you promise today, €2.6 billion?
0: I was the one that had been calling your government out for years in relation to wasteful Answer spending and outsourcing. I'm answering the question. If you leave me answered, wasteful spending on agency spend, but do you outsourcing not believe today outsourcing, that it's right outsourcing, to wrong. Which is that what the you budget has been and, and It's consistently You've been had increased. 13 years to fix the health service and you've made a mess of it, as have Fianna Fail. If I get my chance, I wouldn't care, be cutting, long, wouldn't longer, be cutting never. services on the front line. To the I, know where in where can, I know where money can be saved and I know where efficiencies can be. Where in healthcare? I've said it in relation to agency spend, outsourcing, uh, and, and you've done an awful Where lot of that. Where would you say this money down. right now? You right. have to properly fund the health services. You don't seem to no, understand. No, you didn't say You don't seem to understand that what's driving... Up the costs in healthcare is inflation running at 17 to 20% and increased demand. And you're trying to pretend this can be all about efficiencies. Yes, we need no, we're efficiencies. You okay, have deliberately to... underfunded the health service, own it, but that's not and true. reverse those no, costs. No, right, because, because it's a, a false David. charge, You've been asked to give a reply. This is the do politics
1: it. of the health service. Let's talk about yeah. the potential impact on patients here. Yeah. And both Stephen Donnelly and Bernard Gloucester have been spoke- speaking about the impact to patients here. What have they said?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, we're told there will be no cuts, um, but we're told that the, the and Bernard Lustre had said, if I am forced to break even on my budget, there will be uh, serious consequence for patients. Um, I was writing myself this morning about the impact. For example, as you know, there's no dedicated um, fund for new drugs uh, next year, having spent 100 million in the last three years on that on that area. Uh, and I came up with the calculation of over 4,000 patients who could be affected, who could be expecting to benefit from, from drugs that improve their quality of life, but won't get them unless some kind of savings is made, are made within the system. And I do think it's possible to say both that um, the system may be underfunded and there are arguments about what we, we spend on health relative to other countries. It depends on which way you look at it. It's not convincing, I have to say. Uh, to say that we're un- underfunded by international uh, comparisons. You don't uh, think we are underfunded? Well, the, Mr. Donnelly used the, the uh, comparison of Western European countries and found that we were pretty low down that. Thing. 11th. That ele- yeah, but 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 when the uh, Fiscal Advisory Council looked at it and they looked at our uh, GNI, our, our national income, which is the best comparator, they found that we were fairly high up. So you know, you pick your statistics and the ones that choose that suit you. So we're not. You know, I don't think. It, it, I think that. Isn't, isn't a slam dunk there, you know. But we also don't know what we're spending in the health service. We've, they've acknowledged they don't have a proper financial uh, management system. They've over-recruited in many areas. That's why we have a recruitment freeze at the moment. They over-recruited in many areas this year because they, they're not able to count in real time, you know. Mm. So and, But it's really late in the day for a minister to come and start talking about control measures, meaning savings, mm. really late in the day. There are many years to be doing this before now.
1: Uh, Louise, how politically toxic do you think this is for Stephen Donnelly himself and for relations between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil?
6: I mean, it's bound to cause some kind of rouse within the party. And I mean, like I said earlier, it has kind of been, it was kind of teed up as if no one else got money in the budget, it would be Stephen Donnelly's fault. So I think it is going to cause a little bit of back and forth. But I think there's going to be real pressure on the government, certainly this week, and they're going to have to be seen to be backing Stephen Donnelly and backing this budget. But I suppose it is worth
1: pointing out, there's many times Stephen Donnelly has spoken about wanting to find efficiencies and better value for money from within the health service.
6: Absolutely. And I mean, I think perhaps you need to look at both kind of strains. And I think the Taoiseach was saying, or the Thonister rather, was saying this earlier as well, that perhaps it does need to be a greater examination of the money that's being put in, how that's being spent. We have an ageing population, how are we going to fund that? And he was saying, well, that perhaps it does require a better examination.
1: Um, There was one other um, suggestion today that perhaps there could at some point be a motion of no confidence in Stephen Donnelly. Would you be heading that up, David?
0: What I want is for the government to reverse their decision because I think this will have dire consequences for uh, patients. So no motion of no confidence coming from Sinn Féin? There are reforms which can and should happen in healthcare and I've been talking about those areas for years in relation to IT infrastructure, agency spend, outsourcing, lots of other areas. The government ignored all of that. Management consultancy. It's only now, as Paul said, very late in the day are we seeing some of those measures put in place. Even if all of those savings were achieved, it wouldn't come within an ass's roar of dealing with the deficit and the big black hole that now exists in our health budget. And we put Bernard Gloucester and the HSE in an impossible position. He has said he has to run a deficit. That's not the way to run the health services. And I've outlined the impact this will have on patients. And Neil, where are the 1,500 beds that the okay. Minister talked about? I just want to let yet. Neil Richmond, uh,
1: I suppose, respond to that and to um, the, right, uh, the piece that you wrote today, Paul Cullen, that there's 4,000 seriously ill patients who perhaps won't be able to access new drugs today. What is the HSE meant to do? Are they meant to put forward this service plan that has a clear deficit in it for next year? Or are they meant to cut services, ensure people don't get the drugs they might need in order to try and break even or you know deal yeah. within the budget that's been allocated to them? Just
7: directly on the drugs piece, um, I think the, the additional ask was for 18 billion euro for new drugs and clinical trials to service those 4,000 patients. It is believed that the HSE have said themselves that they can make savings within the use of generic drugs in other forms to provide that funding in that place. So that's the direct answer to the column that Paul wrote today. In relation to quite a lot of matters, I think we have to get back to the fact that this is still a health budget of just close to 23 billion euro. Service will be provided if there is additional needs that can of course be looked in the, at in the supplementary aspects to uh, the government. But ultimately- so it's not
1: underfunded, it's perhaps mismanaged?
7: I think we have made it quite clear and I've said it a few times that inflationary growth increased use of services only explains part of the extra need for spend and we do need to really investigate that in the coming weeks.
1: All right, my thanks to Paul Cullen for joining us for that discussion. The others are going to be staying with us next, the growing conflict in the Middle East and an update on Irish citizens who are trapped in Gaza. Do stay with us. President Higgins has strongly criticised the European Commission head Ursula von der Leyen for her response to the Middle East conflict while in Israel. Earlier I asked Irish Times Europe correspondent about that but first she told me about an apparent terror attack in Brussels tonight in which two Swedish football fans were shot dead.
5: This is a developing story, so not all of the details are quite clear right now. But what Belgian media are reporting is that two people have been shot and killed in Brussels, um, that there was a, an assailant, a gunman involved, and they believe that they've linked an online declaration to the suspect um, and that he um, made declarations that would suggest this was, was a terror attack. Um, as I say, it's, it's a rapidly emerging situation and the details are still... Um, emerging in these hours. This kind of attack is part of why the EU leaders are having an emergency meeting tomorrow, because of concerns about the potential knock-on effects within Europe of this conflict, because there have been tensions in a number of European cities, security at Jewish sites has had to be stepped up across the continent, and there are concerns about potential attacks like this or other tensions spilling over from this conflict in the Middle East. I want to go back
1: to, I suppose, the criticism of Ursula von der Leyen and the position she took in, in relation to Israel uh, on Friday. Our own president, Michael D Higgins, has been pretty scathing in his criticism this evening. Bring us through, Naomi, what exactly he has said and how, I suppose, Ireland's more nuanced position when it comes to the conflict is seen in general in Brussels at the moment.
5: Yeah, so to set things in context, um, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen uh, was unequivocal in her support for Israel in the wake of the Hamas terror attack last week. Um, And this culminated in a visit to Israel on Friday, in which she met with the country's top leadership Um, and spoke at a a joint uh, event with Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister. Now, the criticism really stems from the fact, um, not that she went there, but that when she did, she appeared to speak on behalf of the EU, but without expressing the EU's agreed position on this conflict. So she expressed unequivocal support that wasn't qualified for Israel's retaliation against Hamas. Um, So she didn't pass on the, um, the message about the importance of respecting international law, international humanitarian law, that was extremely important to several member states, and particularly in the context that on the day of her arrival, Israel had ordered the evacuation of more than a million people in Gaza and had cut off uh, food water and electricity supplies. None of these things were mentioned by President von der Leyen, which really caused a lot of discomfort. Um, we Over the, the weekend, we saw mounting criticism of this um, from officials, from different um, members of the European Parliament, and this culminated in the Commission appearing to backtrack somewhat and on Sunday, we heard President von der Leyen mention international law for the, for the first time in public remarks. So today we heard from Ireland's president, Michael D. Higgins. He was speaking here in Rome, where I am, at a, an event of the UN Food and Agriculture Organization. And he was asked about his view on President uh, von der Leyen's position uh, towards Israel and at uh, the and the conflict with Hamas. And he was quite firm in his criticism. He said he, he very much agreed with the criticism that there had been. He described her remarks as thoughtless, perhaps even reckless, um, and said he didn't understand where the authority had come from to make those remarks where the decision had been made. It's important to note that the position of Commission president, it's not a role that involves setting foreign policy. The commission president is supposed to reflect the already agreed foreign policy of the EU member states, but it's the member states that, dis- that decided. So in taking a trip like this and expressing views that weren't those of the EU, that weren't agreed by the member states, uh, there were accusations that she had exceeded her mandate, that she exceeded her role as commission president. And that seemed to be reflected by President Higgins today
1: was Naomi O'Leary from the Irish Times speaking to me just before we come on air this evening. Uh, joining me in studio uh, Gale, Minister of State, Neil Richmond is still here, Sinn Féin TD, David Ann, and the Irish Daily Mirror political correspondent Louise Byrne is also here and I'm also joined on Skype by former Defence Forces officer and military expert Frank Reedy. Frank, I'm going to come to you in a moment but I just want to get a reaction from um, uh, Neil Richmond to those, as I said, pretty scathing comments from our president. He said he's not sure where she got the authority to Mm. say what she said, not sure where the legitimacy is in what she said. He called them reckless, he called them thoughtless. Are his comments helpful?
7: I think uh, we have to take a step back and remember how the EU works when it comes to foreign policy. It doesn't have a united voice. The position is taken by the European Council. It's taken by the 27 heads of government. And that's where the authority is. And the Irish government has been quite clear that we utterly condemn the brutal attack by Hamas. That Israel, of course, has a right to exist and defend itself. But it must do so in the confines of international law when it comes to war. So was she reckless? Well, I wouldn't say reckless, it's her, it's her clear position as an individual. It goes back a long way to when she was German Defence Minister. I actually agree with her going to the region, I think that was a good move. But she doesn't have the authority to fully speak in that manner. And she doesn't speak on behalf of the entire European Union or indeed on behalf of the entire European Commission.
1: Um, what did you make of what he had to say, David?
7: I think he was right because I think the
0: European Union has to be a voice for peace and has to stand up for international law and the upholding of international law. Obviously what's happening at the moment is heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking what happened to people in Israel by Hamas and equally it's heartbreaking now what's happening to people in Gaza. One million people are fleeing for their lives. We see children being killed, thousands dead. And what we need to see is an end to hostilities. Uh, We need talking and dialogue and we've had an experience of that in Ireland in terms of our own peace process. And ultimately we need a settlement and an agreement and there is an obvious role for the international community to play in all of that. But if we don't call out what we're seeing in Gaza, then I I think we have a real problem.
1: But I suppose picking up on what Naomi said, this potential terror attack and two people shot dead in Brussels tonight and a fear across Europe that the tensions that we are seeing um, in Israel and in Gaza and indeed the tensions we are seeing played out online every single day, people taking such polarised positions when it comes to this conflict. um, It's incredibly important, I suppose, that politicians watch the language that they use.
0: Yes, and I think the vast, vast majority of people would condemn what has happened on all sides, and I've condemned Hamas for what happened. But what we're seeing in Gaza at the moment is just absolutely extraordinary, and it's heartbreaking to see 1 million people who are being dispossessed, indiscriminate killing of civilians. And that is a breach in international law. That has to be called out. And there is a clear role for Ireland and for the international community and for the European Union to call out wrongdoing if it's coming from Ham- Hamas or coming from the state of Israel and we've had a long long affinity with the Palestinian people in this country because of the history of that part of the world and obviously we have we to have watch you we have to watch what we, Hamas as a terrorist yes, organization we have to watch, what they do we, we have to watch what we say but we also have to do everything possible to bring about a peaceful settlement to what's happening an end to hostilities talks and dialogue and ultimately we want to see a political settlement.
1: Okay, what about the Irish citizens that we understand uh, are in uh, Gaza? The figure being spoken about at the moment is 40 uh, individuals, some of them Irish Israeli citizens or Irish Palestinian citizens rather and some of them UN workers. What can you tell us, Louise?
6: So the Honish to Micheál Martin, who is of course also the Foreign Affairs and the Defence Minister. He was asked about this earlier today and he is saying that Ireland is going to work with other EU countries and they're going to see what they can do but they're also engaging with the authorities on the ground in Israel and in Gaza which he thinks is very important and I think he's said that rest assured that Ireland is going to do what they can to get anyone that wants to leave out. He said at the moment we've seen in previous cases where it's been an issue of do you have to airlift people out, do you have to actually work with other EU countries because we all know about our own capabilities but he was actually saying the immediate problem and the immediate challenge is actually getting people out of Gaza in the first place and that's why he stressed that it's so important that that RAFA passage Mm. opens and that people can actually get out and then we go from there and we try and see what those people want to do and if they want to leave Gaza.
1: Okay, let me just go to our military expert uh, Frank Reedy. Frank, thank you for joining us on the programme this evening. What is the evacuation route for these individuals if they do want to leave Gaza and how likely is it that that route is going to be opened in the near future?
8: Yeah, well the obvious route is through Rafa, that's uh, right into Egypt. The other route, of course, is back into Israel. But that route is all closed. Uh, They can't leave by sea. They're virtually trapped inside Gaza, as are the people of Gaza. Now, there was a move towards humanitarian considerations at the weekend. Uh, There was more emphasis on the humanitarian solution. But at the moment, Israel is totally focused on a military solution to the barbaric attacks that were made on them. But they have decided now to cut off water, food, fuel going into Gaza and move half the population to the south. Now they were crushed uh, into a small area initially, but now it's worse. So there is a humanitarian emergency now in Gaza. People had hoped that good sense would prevail, that the uh, gate at Rafah would be open, that border crossing people would be allowed out, but that's not going to happen. Israel are about to attack. Their focus is on the military solution, their tanks, their armoured vehicles, their fighter jets. It's a very, very difficult situation, and I think that in the next couple of days, uh, the Americans. The UN are going to have to put more pressure on Israel to take a more humanitarian approach to this problem. They are not going to do what they think they will do, and that is defeat and crush Hamas. That is not possible. Hamas are deeply embedded in Gaza.
1: And We did see Anthony Blinken, the American Secretary of State, sort of crisscrossing across the Middle East over the last couple of days. He's been in Israel, he's been in Egypt, I think he was in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I'm wondering what he's hearing from outside of Israel, from those other countries, and what influence he can have there in terms of trying to get citizens out and trying to get humanitarian aid in.
8: Initially, the Americans were totally supportive of the Israeli military solution. President Biden has slightly modified that He's now focusing on the humanitarian approach. But as I say, Israel don't seem to take any notice of that. And Israel will go ahead tomorrow morning or later tomorrow or the next few days with a ground assault right into the heart of Gaza. And the difficulty is that the, um, the major humanitarian emergency will then be on top of it and then the Americans are going to have to put more pressure. Eventually, we're going to have to have a political solution, but that's not on the Israeli agenda or Hamas's agenda as things stand at the moment. So the people that are there, the focus in the West, of course, are on their Irish citizens, UK citizens, EU citizens, but they're only a very small number. There are also hostages involved. So it's a very complex uh, situation and Israel is ready to attack.
1: Alright, let me just go back to my uh, panel here, Neil. The figure we're seeing is around 40 individuals, is that what you believe?
7: Yeah, it's a mixture of Irish aid workers and then Irish Palestinians, people with dual nationality. It's about the 40 region and they've been encouraged to get towards the crossing of Rafah, where it's safe, because it's not necessarily a safe place due to aerial attacks.
1: But um, there has been diplomatic efforts to agree perhaps a temporary ceasefire yeah. or this route that allows allow foreign nationals to, to come out and to come into Egypt. There doesn't appear to have been any progress at this point does
7: there? No there's been a couple of false dawns over the weekend and um, the presence of the Secretary of State from the US that's the most important presence there he's the person who can deliver uh, an element of access in terms of humanitarian aid or restoration of power or water supplies realistically America has the full financial um, backing to give Israel they're the ones who can intervene there. the EU to a lesser extent and it's also getting the cooperation gen of the Egyptians to open to accept things and then from an Irish point of view any Irish citizens that need to be brought back the Taoiseach met with president macron last night and it's believed that they'll be brought back by um, french officials which is something very it's good to know but we we need to get them out we've already seen irish citizens like kim dante and poor tom hand uh, lose loved ones and lose their own lives we don't need to see any more people caught up in these atrocities
1: no but one of the real concerns and there's concerns for so many individuals not just the irish um, citizens who are there david but it's whether or not these people will actually survive. I heard one of them speaking on the radio this afternoon and he said, our big concern now is not being killed. It's actually just running out of food and it's running out of water. It's running out of basic supplies. It's, it's survival at this
0: point. It is. And the only way to end this humanitarian crisis is to end hostilities. And there is an onus on the Israeli government to stop what's happening at the moment in Gaza because they've cut off electricity, uh, water supply, uh, starving people, Bombing people, killing people. Is there
1: an onus on Egypt to allow refugees from that area to come in and to allow foreign We don't want, we don't want refugees.
0: We don't want refugees. We don't want the million people from Gaza to have to leave.
1: OK, but let's be realistic and let's listen to the, the narrative and realistic. the language no, coming but, out of with Israel. Respect,
0: we, we can be realistic by standing up as an international community against what's clearly wrong.
1: And I think the Irish government has done that quite successfully. I accept that and I'm saying that
0: we have to do more. I don't accept that what Israel is doing is inevitable and I think the international pressure has to be brought to bear. I don't want to see a million people forced to flee, people being killed and murdered, either by Hamas or by the state of Israel because the human suffering is intolerable.
1: Um, I just want to go back if Frank Reedy is still on the line because obviously one of the other concerns for some of our viewers this evening will be our own troops who are in the Lebanon and we have seen some fire along that Israeli-Lebanese uh, border. How great is the threat around there now and how dangerous a moment is this for the entire region, Frank? Just how could this escalate? Yes.
8: Hezbollah will be tempted to support Hamas. There's no doubt about that. An attack... Uh, From southern Lebanon into northern Israel. Uh, A lot of northern Israeli citizens have been evacuated out of their own areas, but the Irish troops uh, in Lebanon are a good distance from the border. They're well protected, they're well defended, they're well trained and well led, but there's also a risk there. And one of the things that maybe Hamas would hope, that there's support from Hezbollah and that some of that support will divert some Israeli troops from action in Gaza and bring them into, um, well, I suppose, northern Israel, southern Lebanon. And the difficulty with that is that it will escalate and it could also bring in the other countries, particularly Egypt, would be destabilised as a result of this conflict. Let me just
1: Um, put that, sorry to cut across you, Frank, I just want to get a response. To what he had to say from you, Neil Richmond.
7: Yeah, and we've seen Irish troops over the weekend have taken defensive positions. They've bunkered in. They are, they're not, they're part of a much wider UNIFIL force. They're, it is always concern that Hezbollah will take this opportunity, but I've every faith that they are protected. They are far enough away from the fighting and they will be resourced fully by the UN mission.
1: All right, look, I'll leave that there for now. My thanks to Frank for joining us next. The impact of a looming carer's strike tomorrow. We have a special report from Claire Brock. Tomorrow, thousands of health and social care workers will go off the job in last-ditch efforts at averting strike action fail. Section 39 workers, as they're known, provide services for voluntary groups, including the Irish Wheelchair Association and Enable Ireland. Unions are taking action because while pay for HSE staff has been restored since the recession, their workers say they have not had pay cuts reversed. Claire Brock had one woman whose quality of life depends on her personal assistance employed through the Irish Wheelchair Association.
3: For 63-year-old Anne Duffy, what may seem like simple tasks are exhausting and require help. Navigating the kitchen, even using a microwave to heat a meal, proves difficult beyond her physical capacity. Anne is living with ME, Lyme disease, and other disabilities, and just last week was diagnosed with long COVID. A lot of that then is chronic pain. So I can go from as
4: from I'm quite comfortable here now, like we maybe be a two, but if I stand two out of ten, but if I stand in the kitchen for three minutes, I'll, I'll be at the point of crying with pain. Like, and I'm on painkillers, but nonetheless, that's yeah.
3: Anne's personal assistant Jenny comes Monday to Thursday. The difference she's made is life-changing. It's
4: the, dependent, the, the dependability of knowing that I'm going to have someone come and help. So if I can't do something today, and that will be most days, then there's help. That's gone. If Jenny, if Jenny isn't here, and definitely the other three days of the week are not covered. You can't underestimate just the importance of the quality of the relationship in it as well, because when you have um, illnesses that leave you locked in your house, And friends do, with these long-term illnesses, they do disappear because you can't go have a cup of coffee or you can't. So there's a
3: a huge social impact. And you've described living without care as like being locked in your home. Can you tell us what that's like? If Jenny joins a strike, I'm locked in my house. Yeah, I
4: have the wheelchair, but the town is not built actually for wheelchairs. So it's really hard even for me in the wheelchair to just... Zoom across. So, all of the preparation stuff that nobody thinks about, like the effort of um, getting properly dressed, getting a coat on, getting into the chair, getting the chair out of the house, getting across, that's all huge. But that's much, much lower if Jenny's here.
3: Describe to us the before. What was there before you had a personal assistant?
4: I wouldn't have washed my hair for a year
3: because I just couldn't
4: because with these conditions having your arms over your head is really difficult um nutrition just disappeared i used to um i used to make quilts you're looking at a at an award winning quilter <laughs> at the RDS. yes but i had to stop i couldn't do that anymore um, so i'm continually having to adjust my coping mechanisms mentally and emotionally to what my body can physically do if there's no resolution on what are your worries if i if i don't have if jenny goes on strike tomorrow and the other um, pa who's supposed to come on board doesn't come on board because of all the delays then my bed doesn't get changed my laundry doesn't get done my food doesn't get cooked i'm living on toast i'm living on cornflakes i'm um i'm stuck in my house yeah and i i'm a really good coper mentally i work very hard at staying, you know, at keeping my um, mental health good. But that's that's a huge challenge if nobody's coming in to, to help or to cook or...
3: Anne says the government's plan for enhanced community care is just not possible if there's pay differences for those doing the same job. Well, you can't have enhanced
4: community care if you don't have people in the home. And if you don't pay the people in the home... The same as other people that are equivalent to them are getting paid they're not going to be in my home why would i mean jenny and i have such a really great working relationship and i'm hoping she'll never leave but she will and it's harder to get someone to work for five year or less or four year or less than they would do if they're working for the hsc with the pension and uh and all the rest it's not okay and so i hold the government responsible for not
3: doing the morally right thing Without a personal assistant, who do you rely on? Who can you rely on now?
4: Nobody. When I say there's nobody there, there's nobody there. And I don't think the government quite gets that because they love talking, the HSC and the Department of Health love talking about their lovely little diagrams of community care, enhanced community care, the persons in the wheelchair. You have the image of somebody holding a balloon and I don't know if you've seen them in their in their blurb. They had a presentation on enhanced community care last September in Dublin Castle, Um But when I say there's nobody here, there's nobody here. When I say I won't eat, I won't eat. And it's not because I won't want to. It's because I can't.
1: Well, that was Anne Duffy speaking to Claire Brock ahead of a possible strike tomorrow. Anne has a personal assistant four days a week, even though she's actually approved to receive help seven days (coughs) a week. A shortage of staff means she's still waiting On more care, Minister of State Neil Richmond, Sinn Féin TD and health spokesperson David Cullinan and Irish Daily Mirror political correspondent Louise Byrne are still here with me. I'm going to have to start with you, Mm. Neil Richmond, because she clearly holds the government responsible here. She says, without her personal assistant tomorrow, there is nobody else. This is a woman who cannot leave her home locked in my house, she said. She won't eat tomorrow if this care assistant doesn't arrive and the poor care assistant um, is feeling so conflicted about Mm. this. How is the government allowed it to come to this?
7: Yeah, and it's a heartbreaking story and we do have to take our responsibility. I'm not going to pick rows over this. Um, These are people's lives at stake. Their cares are vital uh, for every part of their life and they will suffer. And I still very much hope talks are ongoing at the WRC that they can be resolved. We do want to see uh, the pay of these Section 39 workers increased, it has to be increased, it should be increased.
1: Increased to what? To parity with the HSE workers?
7: Well, the offer that was made was a 5% increase um, plus a 3% increase backdated to last a- April. Um,
1: and that's not parity, to be clear? That's
7: not parity, they're looking for 10%. That was rejected um, by their negotiators, it wasn't put to a vote, and we're now in the negotiation to see where we can um, get something in the short term that meets their need and then overall pay, we can look at and pay talks um, you know these are very laborious processes that for someone sitting at home tomorrow who doesn't know how they're going to eat tomorrow or someone who has to rest with their conscience they really don't want to see a politician bringing it down to that minutia or that sort of detail or being so cold about it and not trying to be that's just the process at hand um, Do you
1: think it's fair in principle that two people, one working for the HSC, one working for the Irish Wheelchair Association funded by the government but not directly employed by the hsc are paid differently? That's what it comes down to.
7: Yeah, and and no, I don't think it's fair. And it's not the government's right. It's not the government's role to decide that. The pay is decided by the agency. We just provide the block funding. Um, And what I very much hope that in the future, we will be able to get back to what was the old system. But in the short term, um, the main thing is to see the WRC hopefully bring something that will either at best avert the strike tomorrow or the, the next day.
1: So do these agencies, do you think, do you fund them enough to be able to pay what the HSE pays these carers?
7: Well, that is what the debate is on at the moment in WRC. So what do you think? All I think is that we obviously, no, we're obviously acknowledging we need to increase. That's why we offered an increased rate. Um, but now we need to meet um, through the WRC to make sure that that rate is increased to a rate that the government's prepared to pay and they're prepared to accept. And I very much expect and hope to see a resolution. I would like to see it say tomorrow, but I can't say that certainly at this late hour.
1: Um, David Cullen, this has been ongoing, this dispute here. Why has it been so difficult to resolve, do you think?
0: Well, these agencies and organisations that Neil talked about are the Irish Wheelchair Association, Enable Ireland, and they are tremendous organisations, and we know that the people who work for them do heroic, amazing work looking after the most vulnerable people. And it isn't the case that the people responsible for this the Irish Wheelchair Association or Enable Ireland. They are not being properly funded to ensure that those staff are getting pay parity and what's really really striking about this is that during the austerity years when pay cuts were put in place there was cuts to these organisations funding, the workers took pay cuts but then when there was pay increases they never came and there's a real sore point. We have a recruitment and retention crisis in many of these areas. We can't get the staff to provide supports for people. Okay. And yet, the government has allowed this to happen. It's absolutely madness. i met Just many of those people today, and what they said is, this is a dark day for them, because they don't want to yeah, be the And, and swipe, we heard they that they have no
1: uh, from Anne there. Very briefly, what's happening at the WRC? Any update...
6: So last I've heard, it's still ongoing and um, it's getting late, but we do know the WRC can run late. The strike starts from 8 o'clock tomorrow and I think there's a lot of people hoping that that can be sorted before 8 a.m. comes. It's
1: 5,000 people going on strike, isn't it? Doesn't it is. going to affect a lot of people, but as of now, no uh, no uh, update. No update. All right, look, we're going to have to leave that there for now. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight at VMTV. But from all the late team here, a thanks to all of my guests, Good night and do take care.